For your consideration, sponsors of this episode of the Angler Podcast include Max. Presenting The Last of Us, the HBO original series starring Pedro Pascal as Joel, a hardened survivor hired to smuggle Ellie, a 14-year-old girl, out of an oppressive quarantine zone. What starts as a small job soon becomes a brutal and heartbreaking journey as they depend on each other for survival. Don't miss the critically acclaimed series Empire Calls a Masterpiece. Eligible for outstanding drama series and all other categories, The Last of Us is now streaming on Max. Welcome to the Ankler Podcast. This is Sean McNulty from the Wake Up Newsletter here at the Ankler on the afternoon of Thursday, December 14th. I'm here in New York City, joined by Elaine Lowe and Richard Rushfield in Los Angeles. Elaine, 10 days till Christmas Eve. How's that holiday shopping going? Oh, I got all mine done on Black Friday. Thank you very much. <laughs> wow. <laughs> all, all, you are completely done. Is that right? Yes. Spreadsheet is filled. Everyone is shopped for. All right. I look forward <laughs> to my gift. That's very nice of you. Thank you. <laughs> Bit of a busier week out there than last in Hollywood, I think, as uh, the holiday does approach. A lot of bidding wars out there and a bunch of series and TV deals coming in this week. Netflix, Amazon, Peacock alone today and some more I've written about. You can check those out over in the Wake Up newsletter this week for that roundup, including two essentially four to six million dollar writer paydays. Richard, can we get in on that or what's going on here? I feel like we've made some wrong life decisions. We're writers. Where's our yeah? Player? No, I think I, I think it's open for all writers. It's just I was, I was, yeah. I don't think I don't <laughs> think uh, Netflix and, and we didn't. So. Oh, that's right. All right, we need agents. Oh, that's what it is. Okay, got it. Right. You have to tell them you want to be on the mid seven figure list, not on. Uh, the... Oh, got it. That, that was, I missed that clause in the WGA agreement, Elaine. I guess that was a new. That's a new thing. I think so. That, that was sneaked <laughs> in there. But Richard, it's it's clearly year end bonus time at the agencies. We have a, the final final dash to get the numbers in on a, on a maybe a. a quiet year, Richard, maybe a little bit of a factor here for the motivation. Yeah, it's coming down to the wire to <laughs> scrape together some funds after a pretty rough 2023 with a rough 2024 ahead. So good luck to everybody. Get those bonuses up while you can. Get those the deals signed. Yeah, exactly. And certainly, you know, this is, again, a lot of streamer action, not necessarily a lot of studio action. So again, you know, we're all kind of keeping our eyes on who's whose big checkbooks are still open. And certainly the Amazon and Netflix money is, is still out there for sure. So we'll see what uh, transpires. Amazon is still a going concern. It, it is. Like. I mean, there, that was an MGM deal, but certainly MGM is basically essentially Amazon at this point. So, Which is interesting. All the writers that I spoke to last week when we were talking about TV buying and selling, yeah, Amazon and Netflix are apparently two of the most robust buyers out there right now. I, yeah. one, one was more expected name than the other. Mm, yes, exactly. Yeah, based on what we'd heard previously. So otherwise, Paramount certainly back in the headlines this week, which we'll get to in a moment, which got my mind thinking forward to 2024. And, you know, if you thought 2023 was a year of uh, tumults, I think 2024 is <laughs> not going to be great news for you. So we're going to dive into all that in a bit. And Claire Atkinson has an interview with showrunner Chris Brancato who was, of course, part of the uh, Narcos Brain Trust. And he joins Claire to share some insights into the post-strike world for writers, as well as his upcoming series over at MGM Plus, uh, Hotel Cocaine. But first, Richard, we have some award show hosts. We have some award shows coming up. Big award season is in a few weeks away as well. We have Anthony Anderson hosting the Emmys mid-January. Trevor Noah's returning to the, to the Grammys for the fourth time in early February. 
We also had some Globes nominations, Richard. You did not get one. I, I, I apologize. They haven't uh, added a best newsletter category yet, although I'm pretty surprised that that hasn't transpired with all the other categories they're throwing in there. But don't know Globes hosts three weeks, Richard, to the show. So They, they hinted like, oh, something special is coming. So <laughs> it, they, that, yeah. that, was, that was dangled. So uh, we'll see how special it was. You know, hosting these things is often just like a kamikaze mission for one's reputation there uh, as it was last year uh, do you have plans on uh, january 7th richard or i'll be watching football with the rest of america so i can't do it are you are you available on, on the 7th i'm going to be protesting outside the globes demanding uh, access to the dessert buffet for all working journalists mm. in california here so that's my plan well maybe you won't even have to pick it for it is the globes are they really the hot ticket they used to be given everything that went down yeah. this last Who's couple of years show up yeah good question right maybe they'll take walk-ins yeah I will say, as a man who's attended a awards show or two in my time, that I've I've often said the Globes were the only show I would go to uh, just for the fun of it because it was it was a fun place to to go and be, and we'll see if they preserve that this year. But it was as depicted: it was people bopping around from table to table, and everyone drinking, and the eclairs flowing in the dessert bar and it was a fun scene to hang out in yeah well we have a new home this year on cbs for i presume one year i believe but we don't know what that deal is exactly but uh anything strike you about the business around this uh richard this week so so leading up to this this is the first year the globes are the property of penske media which also owns all the major trades we are a uh, boutique niche publication of course and, uh, <laughs> right by a proud space but variety hollywood reporter deadline are all owned by the producer of the Golden Globes. And we saw that coming and we're like, you know, part of your brain is just like, well, that can't really be. That's to have one person own all the trades plus the number two awards show, which is entirely dependent on hype and boosterism to, to preserve its its place. So they're going to they're going to hype it and then they're going to take the FYC advertising to get the money from it. But the People voting on it are also Penske Media employees now. Conflict of interest much? <laughs> it's beyond, it's like three conflicts of interest. Like, three, exactly, yeah, it's a big Venn diagram and it's only one circle. Each other. Yeah. It's like, like yeah. you can't eat, like, it's kind of like the interest like swallowed the entire world. And you kind of thought like, well, that can't just happen. That just can't be. And you thought the, the trades would be sort of embarrassed to cover it given that position or or they they do something to sort of prove their independence or show it. But no, that is, of course, completely overestimating the capacity for irony within the trade world. And they just went all in and, and did full team coverage on the Globes, snubs and surprises. Here's the tune-in information, punditry. What I noted in my column today was that the punditry seemed to Go really go the extra mile to show that the, the Globes ha now have become an all-important barometer of the Oscars. That mm. the word barometer is gold within the FYC world. If you if you can be a barometer for the Oscars, then you've just minted something huge there. So the pundits at I think all the Penske publications were really sticking their necks out to note that this is really a big influencer. Globes and you know in every every graph on on paragraph. Below paragraph 37, there was a little italicized, oh, yeah, the Penske Media owns, also owns the Clark, which owns L. Richard Jones Globe. And apparently, if you put in a little line of disclaimer at the bottom of 
of a uh, story than any ethical compromise is excused as long as you just throw that one line. Although, to be fair, as a rank and file reporter, what other journalistic alternative is there other than just doing what you see as straight reporting if you're, you know, just a, another journalist at one of these publications? I mean, you can say... Which, full disclosure, I have been. Yeah, no, believe me. In this racket, we've all had to walk some gray lines there. And I've been there and I feel for the people who are put in that position, but it's totally wrong. It's amazing. You can't imagine in any other field that this would be anything but people completely aghast that it's happening. And I I think part of it is people are just like, oh, why are you taking the Globe so seriously? Who cares about Globe and awards? And it's not that I'm taking them seriously. I, I, I don't take anything seriously, but I take it seriously that the trade publications have sort of cut out this huge swath of territory where, you know, ethics can kind of, you can kind of put them on the side there because this is just awards, so we could, uh, we can leave them. So anyway, I found the whole thing a little bit shocking, even though there was no reason I should have been shocked. Yeah. Well, we'll see if America cares is probably the bigger question on January 7th as it goes up against the final the final weekend of NFL football where all the playoff determinations are uh, are determined, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So very curious to see what the audience is this year over on on the CBS. Otherwise, this week, Netflix kind of really took a lot of the attention and oxygen in town, it felt like. Well, first, let me ask, have you gotten your invitation to the Netflix Slam yet? What's your status? I have not. And oh, I, no. I've, been, I've been actually looking out for tickets since they go on sale on Friday. Uh, the Netflix Slam being an, uh, an exhibition match, essentially. A tennis match. It's called tennis a Slam, match. but it's really an exhibition match uh, between Rafael Nadal and Carlos Alcaraz, two enormous names Two of the in biggest tennis. players in the world right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this is supposed to be Rafa's last year on the tour, supposedly, before he retires. And Alcaraz is the next big thing in tennis, in men's tennis. So it's going to be an exciting match. And they were initially supposed to play, I think, at a different exhibition match around this time last year. So, But uh. then I think Rafa got injured and Alcaraz eventually pulled out, if I recall correctly. And so it didn't happen. So this is anticipated, at least for tennis nerds like me. <laughs> and interestingly, on the business front, another foray into live sports for Netflix since they're going to be streaming this live. And, you know, they've had a couple of sports documentaries out. Obviously, Drive to Survive has done enormously well for them. They've also had Breakpoint for tennis, uh, Full Swing for golf. So it's an intriguing strategy that they're pursuing with these sports documentaries and then one-off live events. Yeah, for for a service that professes consistently they have no interest in acquiring no live interest. sports. They're doing a lot of live sports. <laughs> I mean, I joke, you know, look, it's an opportunity for them, I think, even larger here is to integrate, to have sponsors come and get that business going where why are they doing this? Why are they Why are they focusing so much on sports versus reality show live things or, or stand-up specials, which we saw them dabbling with Chris Rock this past year as well. So, you know, it's an opportunity to schmooze and get that ad to your, you know, advertising business, maybe getting a little, you know, greasing some wheels. So it's a bunch bigger opportunity to go to a trip to Vegas, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Richard, of course, was out in Vegas for the Netflix Cup, which was the golf event. So I'm sure there are plenty of advertisers out there, right? A golf, a golf racing event. Very serious business. Yeah, yeah. We'll see if Mark Wahlberg's entourage attends the, uh, the Netflix Slam with his, uh, was it 50 large, Richard? Was that was that the, the, the head count, I think? <laughs> was he running, running deep there? I think so, yeah. He had a big crew uh, that, that moved through there. Mr. Vegas himself. So again, that's uh, on a Sunday this time. That was a Tuesday in the golf match. They've they've uh, moved it to a weekend at least. We shall see. I think it 
starts it's at the 3 Sunday p.m. before Indian Wells. So every every tennis player worth their salt is going to be uh, in the area because Indian Wells is, you know, two hours outside of L.A. That happens. It starts the weekend after the Netflix slam. And for those maybe who don't know what Indian Wells is, I mean, I'm oh just my saying, God. maybe there's catch somebody up, out there. Catch I don't know. People. Maybe it's maybe it's not me, <laughs> no, but you know, there'll like be somebody else. It's like the fifth else. slam behind the four okay. major Grand Slams. It's basically right. the fifth yeah. next largest, most important tennis event there is. Got it. I will what be there. Total number of slams. Five of four. So there are four of, major of slams. This is four, the yeah. You've got the the U.S. Open, the Australian Open, Wimbledon, and the French Open. And so Indian Wells is sort of the unofficial fifth slam. There's and not then, like a hundred other slams out there that don't make the the big. No, there's sport. just the regular tournament circuit after that. Uh, and then, of course, the Netflix slam, the uh, the well, sixth <laughs> slam. As yeah, they're I'm trying sure to slide right in there. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. Yeah, I get it. So crafty Netflix is going right in there. But I know it as the weekend before the Oscars, so I'll leave it that way. I'll stay oh, on. Yeah, I'll stay on. Oh, oh, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> that too. But elsewhere, a Disney deal, Elaine, they're at a licensed 14 library shows to Netflix again. Coming full circle on, uh, you know, it's uh, the new buyer Netflix, in town. I mean, really yeah. made their name on having all of these licensed titles went into originals, you know, kind of anticipated as as Ted Sarandos likes to tell people that that well would run dry as other right. studios built their own streamers out and right. now it's coming back around, right? Yeah, and Iger had said, had pulled all the stuff back saying, you know, we're out of that business. I mean, many years back in the mid-2010s and now we're back, you know, and this is again... You know, a non-exclusive deal. These shows are, this is How I Met Your Mother, Lost, you know, kind of stuff from from the vault there. Nothing too new. I think, you know, White Collar, of course. <laughs> Old USA shows. We're going to try out the new USA, test another USA show over there. Uh, but they're non-exclusive. So they're also still on Disney Plus and, and Hulu. So Disney gets a check. Netflix gets some viewership. It's the way the world used to work. I mean, it just, it just makes sense because, I mean, journalists can be very fussy about this. And man, I want... I want every show in its proper home, in its proper place, with the complete archive. And the the fact is that that most shows sort of sub Game of Thrones after they've been out there and they've been sitting there for a while, they're not collecting a lot of audience. So they're just sort of filling up the archives so everybody can say, "Look, the complete archives, all in one place and nowhere else." But if if you're the creator of the show, those shows aren't that are sitting on the on the back shelf, they're not attracting new viewers or they're certainly not making any money and they're not keeping alive the legacy of it. Whereas if they come over, you know, it was just, like you say, it used to be like when they'd get, you know, silver spoons would come into syndication on channel on channel 11, then it would be a big boost for silver spoons and the silver spoon legacy. I still have no idea what this show is, Richard. You've referenced what? it several times. I'm sorry. Whoa, whoa, I don't know whoa, silver whoa, spoons. Whoa. Really? Am I going to get kicked off this pod now? Yeah, yeah I mean, now you might. Uh, Premier Magazine, I'll, I'll give you a pass on, but you don't know Silver Spoons. That's a contemporary reference. It is? It's, it's Jason Bateman's on that show. The it's, it's actually after my time. It's more it's, my uh, time. That's, that's yeah, that's Ricky Schroeder. Ricky Schroeder? Don't know Ricky Schroeder? Who? Oh, man. All right, we're going to sidebar this. I think I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to be excommunicated uh, from Angler this pod podcast now. podcast audience, I apologize for Elaine's <laughs> Next week, Elaine will not be joining us. <laughs> Elaine will be fully up to speed on wherever Silver Spoons is airing right now. A, a, we said that? a Norman Lear company production. So yeah, exactly. But yes, exactly. Uh, to your point, Richard. Yes. it's In fact, they're quote, sunk costs when they sit on your service and no one's watching it. And now you're making money. This is what business is. It's not like it's this completest version of, you know, things that no that no American viewer does is a, you know, mythological watch all 200 episodes of How I Met Your Mother in one place. And, you know, I'm going to pay for that. No, no one, no one does that. Doesn't matter. So 
And it makes total sense, given if you're looking at licensing again in the Netflix realm, given that we learned this week that 45% of viewing from January to June of this year was licensed viewing with shows like Suits and Breaking Bad and and Walking Dead from this well of data that Netflix decided to release to the press this week. The Netflix, big Netflix data dump. When it comes to a new home, the new home has incentive to market it and put some new life into it. Sure. And they still own it. They still Disney still owns the shows. But uh, yeah, that, this is the other big you know headline of the week. The big Netflix reveal, I guess. <laughs> Ted did a, a an announcement call with the press. Richard and I were <laughs> lucky enough to be on this week and hear it live. It's essentially a big spreadsheet. Uh, so that's <laughs> which we I can guess, say we were there when the, we were uh, there when the Netflix flipped the switch. So for background, Netflix is going to be releasing twice a year all viewership. For any show or movie that has any marker of viewership in a given six-month period, I think it's 500,000. So I, it was, I thought it was 50, over 50,000 hours. Right, we'll go 50,000 anyway. hours. Anything over that will be reported. This was essentially 99% of you know Netflix programming, so it's pretty much everything. There's not that much that isn't on there. And if you're not on there, well, that's, that's a bad sign for you. So going forward, this will be coming out. This is now six, almost six months after the period ended. So this first one was uh, January through June, as, as Elaine said. So we'll wait for our next one probably in May. Hopefully they didn't really specify when we'll be getting this stuff. But um, yeah, it's uh, rounded to the 50,000 hour and it's everything, Elaine. Uh, did you, we haven't talked about this. What was your kind of, you know, takeaway here? I mean, I don't think there were too many huge surprises given that Netflix is one of the streamers that has a top 10 featured on its homepage. So you're always kind of apprised as to what's popular. The Night Agent topped that list. We all know that's huge. And also, again, lines up when we're talking about the TV buying and selling market. It's like that action adventure kind of series is what's doing well right now. You know, other names on that list, Ginny and Georgia, Queen Charlotte also. Yeah, I mean, and here's the thing about it is, and, you know, it's not about that. We have that information. But Richard, what we're getting now is what's not working. You, you know, you could the, the duds are out there. Before, if you had, if your show didn't work, you could just shrug your shoulders and say, well, no one knows how many hours it did. And now the whole town can see how your show did, Richard. Yeah, and the downside of this or the, the trickle-down effect to this is you got to be careful what you sign on to. It would be a little the, more, right? The way it has worked up to now is any streamer offered you a check, you could take it and there was no doubt. No no consequences, yeah. If it didn't if no one watched it, then no one knew. Now, if you have created a show that no one watched, if you have starred in a show or film that no one watched, the world will know and that will come up in your next contract negotiation, I guarantee. Yeah, it's kind of became, well, we've said it before, you know, when the whole data transparency and the WGA and SAG deals, a little be careful what you wish for. Like, you will get the hits, but now Netflix is putting out all the all the information. So, you know. Being part of a giant web enterprise, you are most likely involved in something that has very, 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 very low viewership. You know, there right. are, I mean, there, there yeah. are hits, and then there is a huge long tail of things that are non-hits, shall we say. Yeah. But this list is also just hours viewed. Netflix itself has shifted to a, a view count metric, which is something I've been doing for two years now that I do every week in, in the wake up. I do a Netflix film's top nine, which again, it just gives you more context. You know, just because a book is longer doesn't mean it's more popular. Like you're spending more time with something because the thing is longer. So this hours viewed metric is a little, you know, again, uh, you want to do the, the math on it, which is long and boring. So take it for what it is. But again, the, the popular stuff we already knew was popular, was indeed popular, but this window into what we haven't heard about is going to be something that's going to have some ramifications coming up. 
in the years to come. In terms of the film stuff, I looked at the top 400 or so, you know, family animation, again, licensed stuff is just dominates the film viewing. It's really, you know, from Boss and old, the Lorax from 2011 was one of the top hits. Boss Baby is huge. It's such you a know. contrast to their TV top 10 and top 20. It re- really is. Yeah, because family, I mean, well, I guess, well, you know more than this, what, what's on there. <laughs> Coco Melon's certainly on there for for fan, but it's not, for sure. it, it is the Night Agent and, you know, all these other shows. It's not family content, Elaine. What I thought was interesting is how many of them were originals, that 55-45 split between 55% being Netflix films in series, which, I mean, you know, props where they're due. You look at what a long way Netflix has come from having just House of Cards and Orange is the New Black to having 55% of their viewing come from Netflix film and series and only 45% of that coming from licensed products. So Yeah, yeah. And this is a global number as well, I should note here. 30% of viewing from non-English titles. Speaking of global. But, you know, only one, one third of their membership is in the U.S. So, like, yeah, two thirds, you know, it's like it's uh, it's curious how the numbers break down between subscribers and where the content comes from. But it's a global business. And this is a good a good insight into that. And so no breakdown by region, no breakdown. So there's not a lot of you no know, completion rates, things like that. But, you know, it's some data. So better. Hey, and, and your point, Elaine, Netflix still is tops in the game here at giving actual data. No one else does anything like this. So That's a nice start. Oh, man. What I would do for completion rates. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which they used to do when, the first, when they first started doing right. it. They get started, they, and then they stopped doing that. So take that as you will. But I will just do a top and tail here. I did I did some sports math for you, Elaine. This is fresh data. Sports math. Is that like girl math? What's, what's sports math, John? <laughs> girl math. <laughs> that is. You're not on the internet as, you're not yeah, as I guess like so, yeah. chronically online as I'm I am. Watching, I'm watching Silver Spoons. <laughs> I don't know what that is. But, you know, so back to those series you mentioned at the top, which everybody mentions as everybody loves these and et cetera, et cetera. But I put your, your I put them against each other. I did the basic math. So I basically took all the hours for Breakpoint, Full Swing, and Drive to Survive and divided it by the run times of all the collective episodes in each season. So of the three shows, Elaine, which is number one and which is what's one, two, three out of the three shows? It must be Drive to Survive. This was the thing. This was the show that I feel like gave Netflix the confidence to pursue things like Breakpoint and Full Swing. Okay, clearly. All right, but I will give you, I'll give you Breakpoint and Full Swing then. So which one? Golf or tennis? What do you got? I would love to say tennis. I would love to say Breakpoint. I watched that one. I've watched it several times, actually. Um, but I, there's <laughs> well, a larger golf contingency, at least stateside. So I'm going to say full swing second and then Breakpoint third. Yeah, it's not even close. I'm sorry, Elaine. Ten- tennis what? does not, was not, the world was not, not feeling the tennis here. So, oh. uh, and, and to Elaine's point, again, there's no indication of duplicate viewership, things like that. It's just pure hours. So, you know, there's a lot of caveats in these numbers, but... You had Breakpoint with 3.8 million viewers by that metric. Full Swing was 8.8 million, so a good five, good 50 less than 50% of the That's viewership than, big, than PGA. That's a big, big difference. Bump. Yeah, yeah, Full Swing was much more popular. And then Drive to Survive was 13.4 million, according to the basic math of this. So that was indeed, this is season five. So all these, all three seasons launched in essentially January, February. This was a six-month period, so this is a pretty good, accurate representation of the viewership of each show. So that's some fresh math, Elaine, here on the Angler Podcast. 
I will do my part and watch Breakpoint a few more times. <laughs> Clearly, we need you to watch the reruns <laughs> to get it going. To note, the NFL series quarterback was in, in July, so we won't have those numbers until next year. So we can't do the NFL comp to see how that goes up against these shows. But that's your numbers. All right, let's move on. We're going to go up next over to Paramount and the look at the big year of change ahead. Things we know will happen and a few things that are, that are out there in Rumorville. But uh, we'll be right back in a moment. For your consideration, sponsors of this episode of the Ankler Podcast include Max, presenting the HBO original Barry, starring Bill Hader in the explosive and hilarious final chapter of a man trying to untangle himself from the world of contract killing and immerse himself in acting. Eligible for outstanding comedy series and all other categories, Barry is now streaming on Max. All right. So uh, Paramount back in the headlines this week are certainly a focus of a lot of chatter among the punditry and so forth. Over 1,000 layoffs have been, quote, discussed. Uh, That's according to a new report in the Wall Street Journal. This is after a cut of 25% of Chris McCarthy's division alone back in May and some layoffs uh, about a year ago when they merged TV studios and Paramount Plus together. So this is not even would not even be the first layoff. And Elaine, it seems like the sale that everyone's been predicting for quite a long time is finally starting to show some signs of life or or some movement here. What's going on? I mean, I think when you look at the macro factors at play here of is Paramount up for sale? Who could possibly buy Paramount? You know, Sherry Redstone doesn't want to just sell Paramount Pictures, the movie studio. She wants to sell the whole thing, ideally. I mean, when you're looking at it holistically, unfortunately, how much of it is surprising when you're looking at the greater trends in the industry. Essentially, you're looking at layoffs and M&A, right? And that's kind of been the the undercurrent of of the corporate environment for the last couple of years already. Yeah. And this is the rumors, of course, started around Skydance, having some conversations. I think the journal also reported, you know, again, Redbird. just meetings. This is Activision was, uh, you know, saying hello or had a meeting with Sherry. I don't People know. Kicking tires. Kicking, uh, kicking tires going on this week. <laughs> but this is in National Amusements, which is the parent company, of, you know, the holding company, the, the Redstone company that owns Paramount. So they have all the voting shares, but they only actually have a 10% financial interest in National Amusements amusements, but not to be complicated about it, it's not buying Paramount the business or Paramount the studio. You're buying the parent company, which controls it, which then you then it's essentially it's if you take a controlling stake in national amusements, then it's your job to figure out, <laughs> okay, we're going to sell off the cable networks. We're going to, you know, keep the studio. We're going to, you know, that's really the job at hand. It's not a sale of the studio per se. And, you know, Richard, it's, it's, you know, there's a studio business, there's which has a ton of value as Disney has just proved in this Netflix deal. And, you know, they own the huge library and a, and, a, and a big movie studio and so forth. You have CBS in there, and then you have all the local TV stations, which Byron Allen, you know, has offered $10 billion for ABC to, to Bob Iger a few months ago. So, you know, maybe he could sweep, sweep in for that. You've got cable networks, which everybody does not see a big future in. And, okay, you can put those off to private equity. Who knows? Uh, and then you have Paramount Plus, which people are like, well, you know, that's losing hundreds of millions of dollars a quarter still with no profit timeline. So, you know, anyway, Richard, you know, it's a few math equations here, but anything strike you about this? I mean, Paramount has, since it became a, a company again and reunited with CBS, has never not been for sale. It's been, <laughs> right. It's, yeah, it, ever since that deal closed with CBS, it's like this immediately started. Constantly like. for sale and constantly is a subject of rumors that it's about to yeah. sell. But uh, there is some urgency to it now with great pullback 
coming of this and with, with the cable bundle falling, with uh, all these other large debt payments in the horizon. Theatrical yeah. issues. There's True. there's endemic problems here that sort of point to this is this is the time to get the heck out while you can. So one would think that there's maybe a little something more to the rumors this week than in uh, lots of weeks past. Yeah, I mean, certainly nothing imminent, but yeah, there's a lot of chatter for years without much really evidence behind it. Now there's a little bit of you know yeah. momentum here. I'll point to the one, I, I put this in my column the other week, but the one thing in common about the last two murders we had, which the Warner Discovery and Disney buying Fox, is that there was no hint, there were no whispers, there were no rumors, there was nothing, no inkling that any of these things were about to happen until the announcement came. Yeah, and then the stories about how that all how it all came together it came afterward Richard, but yeah, exactly, leading which I think the hindsight gets a little little foggy in that regard. So, so take your rumors about who's about to buy it and this close yeah. to buy it or just sign the deal. Take take them all with a grain of salt. And what people's motivations might be Reds, you wrote you also wrote down Richard is very important to consider where where it's coming from and who it's involving. So, different uh, motivations involved here, but should note also at large that the Fed announced that they uh, indicated that three rate cuts would come in 2024. So again, interest rates have been prohibitive this year has been not been a great year for M&A at all. It's been pretty dead. I mean, outside the CAA deal, which was not an M&A deal. So, that could take this all up a notch, you know. So yeah, Paramount, you've got Warner Brothers Discovery, they're Tax handcuffs come off, I think it's April 7th. That comes out in April. So they are free to start making deals based on the reverse Morris trust rules, which we all now know very well. You've got Endeavor still hanging out there talking, you know, Silver Lake. David Faber was on CNBC this week saying the Silver Lake taking a private was not very close, but, you know, that's a... Just, just David Faber, whatever he's hearing, but certainly on the everybody's uh, agenda for 2024. Elaine, uh, we still have IATSE, so <laughs> that deal we broke down last week, that's going to happen in 2024. So it's you know three likely scenarios of things that are, that are going to be big changes for the business. I mean, IATSE help is just a deal, but uh, if that was a strike, it'd be a much different story. And then we've got Disney exiting India, probably maybe even next week, and their majority ownership. Amazon Prime goes to an ad tier in Q1, so there's like a lot of major changes. And Hulu goes officially inside of Disney Plus as of March. So, you know, Elaine, a lot on the horizon that, that is pretty definite. That's a, that's a lot. I mean, especially when you potentially look at another labor situation, which who's to say what that's going to look like and how much leverage or non-Ianti has coming out of the WGA and SAG strikes. But it's like, okay, we're looking at another year of potential labor stoppages. We're looking at more M&A, and right. that naturally is going to lead to more layoffs and, and you know, right. more personnel shedding in the corporate world. It's like on the chaos level, Sean, like from <laughs> 1 to 10, like yeah. if this year was like an 8, what do you think next year is going to look like? Yeah, I don't think it's going down to a 7, I'll put it that way. You know, so I just I, if you're looking for solace in a fresh year and, a, you know, a little stability, I don't think 2024 is going to be going to be your year. So, I mean, I'll, I'll throw this on top of it, but, you know, uh, over at TKO, WWE Raw still needs a home. The UFC ESPN deals up in 2025. So that'll probably be next year. And the NBA deal, the biggest, you know, sports deal out there outside of the NBA is going to be decided in, in 2024. So that's going to be a whole new plan too. And so. also uh, you have, you have movie chains hanging on by a and thread. You have a movie business, and, right? And about to get through a year with very limited supply. Well, this, I mean, you have one chain, the second largest chain, Regal, still hasn't really 
put forth their post-bankruptcy plan. They're coming out of bankruptcy. They just hired a CFO uh, last week, this week or last week. So yeah, but no one knows what that's going to look like. And Richard, that could still mean the shedding of a lot of locations that, you know, no one knows that's still kind of out there. And then you have AMC, which is, you know, trading back $6 and they've done a lot of finagling. But if they have another rough six months, they could be out of tricks at this point to raise money. And, you know, they have a lot of debt hanging over their heads. So I don't think there's another Taylor Swift sitting on the shelf right I now. Don't, I don't know. Yeah, well, exactly right. So uh, up next, we're going to have Angler contributor Claire Atkinson's interview with Chris Brancato, who is uh, one of the creators of Narcos. He joins Claire to talk about what he learned uh, during the strikes and uh, Hollywood's historic glamorization of drugs and drug use as he finishes production on his new MGM Plus series called Hotel Cocaine, which uh, I think was the best mini bar in Miami in 1974. No? Elaine, nothing on that one? Mm-mm. No, just just <laughs> nothing. Trickets. All right. I, I'll, I'll try it next time. You're a tough audience, Elaine. All right. I'll, I'll get you some silver spoons. Anyway, we'll be right back after a quick break. All right, we're back. And now, Uncle contributor Claire Atkinson's interview with Chris Brancato, who is one of the creators of Narcos and the upcoming MGM Plus series, Hotel Cocaine. Chris, tell me about the new show. What's it about? Hotel Cocaine is about the Mutiny Hotel in Miami, which still exists today, but was in its heyday in the late 1970s, where it was kind of the epicenter of newly rich Miami cocaine dealers, DEA agents, CIA agents, movie stars, rock stars, a whole interesting assortment of characters who gave the hotel its moment in time primarily fueled by Dom Perignon champagne and lots of cocaine. Obviously, it's about drugs. Narcos was about Pablo Escobar and the drug trade in Colombia and Mexico. And really, both shows are about glamorous people living rich lives and having fun and parties and clubbing and music and cars and girls. But there's a deeper message in both of the shows. You have a message here to society, right? Well, Hotel Cocaine, it came to me because a friend of mine who was an actor on Narcos named Maurice Compte, who played the Colombian police captain who went after Pablo Escobar. Maurice told me that his father had been the general manager of the Mutiny Hotel, which I had no idea what it was at the time. And as he described it to me, I said, well, that would make a kind of interesting series. You know, um, Casablanca, but with the, the backdrop of Casablanca, the movie is World War II. This, the backdrop is the war on drugs. And I, I took the story of Maurice's father, Roman Compte, and by necessity had to highly fictionalize the story in order to give it the drama that was necessary. And so in the show, Roman Compte is tasked by the DEA to spy on his estranged older brother named Nestor, who is Miami's biggest Coke dealer. And so Roman, who is not involved in the drug trade, is forced to spy on his brother because if he doesn't, his younger daughter will be taken away from him just simply because he works in a nightclub with, lo with lots of cocaine being sold. So in any case, that's the central premise of Hotel Cocaine. And I'm well aware from doing Narcos and doing subsequent to that Godfather of Harlem, which is about Bumpy Johnson, a heroin dealer. You know, I, I like the crime genre in particular. I suppose my stock in trade is the drug crime drama. But it's important to me from Narcos onward that, well, let's put it this way. I have an understanding that these shows can, in some senses, glamorize the lives of drug dealers. 
or make it even appear to be a pleasure-seeking at its finest, so to speak. And I was particularly attuned to that when I saw the reactions to Narcos, which fundamentally were about the DEA agents who went down there and worked with the Colombian government and Colombian military and Colombian police in order to end the scourge that Pablo Escobar had begun down there. But I found in the social media commentary about the show that a lot of people were rooting for Pablo Escobar. And so in some um, panels that I did after Narcos ended, people would ask me, you know, hey, how do you feel about the fact that Escobar is kind of glamorized in the show? And it, it led me to think a little bit more than perhaps I had at the beginning of doing Narcos about what the effect of writing and producing this stuff and sort of putting it out in the universe what effect it had on society and on, um, for lack of a better word, my own soul. On the one hand, I believe that we as viewers should be able to watch subject matter that is dark or dangerous and hopefully have the moral compass to not want to follow in Pablo Escobar's footsteps. I remember early on speaking, we had a meeting with President Santos in Colombia before we started shooting Narcos. And he said, I hope that the series does reflect that all of those big time coke dealers, especially Escobar, but most of the rest either ended up dead or in jail. Further to that, the tagline of Hotel Cocaine is that every pleasure has a price. And so I think that what I seek to do is, first and foremost, my job is to entertain people through the medium of television series. And secondarily, if you're using drugs as a centerpiece of the criminal activity being depicted, that it's very important to show that the outcome for most of these people is jail or death, and that the use of the substance itself has a very, very dark side. In the late 70s, when our show takes place, cocaine was was not viewed as a particularly dangerous drug. It was viewed as a glamorous drug. And it wasn't until the mid 80s when some athletes died of cocaine overdoses that people started to really fully understand the physical danger of the drug itself. Our show tries to depict mostly the statement that I think is basically true, which is that for every gram of cocaine that someone does in a pleasurable atmosphere in Miami or any place else, there's actually a long trail of dead bodies leading back to South America where the drug is grown and produced. So the show tries to reflect that reality and hopefully allows viewers to see that every pleasure does have a price and hopefully, you know, not to use these substances Tell us about, like, help the audience visualize what the show looks like, because it's set in the 70s, you get to see the clothes, you get to listen to the music in the clubs, and you get to see those fantastic cars. Well, at first, as we determined that the show was going to be set in 1978 Miami, we were fully cognizant that Miami of 2023 doesn't look at all like Miami of the 70s. So we went to Columbia. Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic to scout locations that would be more in line with, with the, the 70s Miami that we were trying to depict. And it turned out that the Dominican Republic, the cast of the water, the color of the water there, the sunshine, the palm trees, and in particular, a location we found that was an operable hotel that was at about 10% capacity. We realized that that was the spot where we should shoot it in order to depict late 1970s Miami. We 
built the mutiny club, the in, interior of the club, so that, of course, we could control the environment there because the hotel we were using for the lobby and the front port cochere were all active working hotels. And the real hotel did not have a sexy club attached to it. So that was a stage build. We managed to attract a crew, really compliments to our director, producer, executive producer, Guillermo Navarro, who in a former life was a director of photography for Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo Navarro won an Oscar for Pan's Labyrinth and participated in many of del Toro's greatest successes. So Guillermo was our visionary, and also Ricardo Del Rio was our producer who pulled together a crew from all over Latin America. So we've just had an incredible costume department and locations department and production design department, all of which we think gives a very um, authentic look to the period. Yeah. And tell us who's in it. You've got some fabulous actors in it. Well, one of the things that I've also learned in making shows that take place with different ethnic groups is that, for example, in the South American world, there are Argentinians and there are Colombians and there are Bolivians and Peruvians. In other words, every single country has a different accent, has a different, you know, basic look of the people. And so we were determined to be very, very faithful to the actual nationality of the actors we cast, which in some ways was a help because our two leads, Danny Pino and Yul Vasquez, are actually Cuban, Cuban Americans, and those are realistic to the times. And so we had a smaller group of actors to choose from for each of these different nationalities. So, for example, the antagonists of the Cubans in this first season of the show are the Colombians. So we hired real Colombian actors. And if, the, if, if an actor is from Mexico, then they depict a Mexican, you know, portion of the trade. So that allowed us to hire some amazing people. Danny Pino is probably most well known for a a long stint on Law & Order SVU. Yul Vasquez has been in many, many movies and and television series. And those men are both wonderful human beings and very, very fine actors. We also had as the DEA agent who forces Roman Compte, played by Danny, to spy on his brother, played by Yul, Michael Chiklis, who's most famous from The Shield. Yeah, he's a DEA agent, right? And then tell us about Mark Feuerstein, too. Well, one element that we wanted to try to suggest in the show was also the what was running through America at that time in the mid to late 70s, was, which was this sort of sexual revolution, hedonism, a kind of embracement of different philosophies like EST and, you know, meditation and such. And so Mark, who was a, the lead character on a show called The Royal Pains, Mark is the owner of the hotel. In real life, that man's name was Burton Goldberg. In our show, we call him Burton Greenberg. In any case, Mark adds an element of the sort of zaniness of that self-help movement of the 70s, while also being inexorably drawn into the drug trade that's part of his hotel. And his character serves not only as a kind of comic relief, but also over his journey over the course of the eight episodes, he comes to see that the pleasure aspect upon which his hotel is based carries a lot of pain behind it. Obviously, we've had the writer's strike that shut down a lot of production across the world. Tell us how did that affect you and how have you managed to get everybody back together again? Well, we had finished our scripts prior to the strike, so we were able to go and shoot 
the show in the Dominican Republic. And about four episodes in, the actors went on strike, which now meant we had to shut down. So we're actually going back in early January. We've just actually started prepping now in the Dominican Republic. And we start to go back to actually shoot the the remaining four episodes in early January. And I'm hopeful that the show will be on uh, in, in the summer, you know, June of 2024. Uh, at least that's what I've been told. Do, do you have any thoughts on the Hollywood strikes and, and what the unions were able to achieve for talent? Well, I think, you know, nobody wants to go on strike and everyone is aware of the vast collateral damage that happens beyond just writers and actors when production shuts down. So I don't think it was anything that was entered into lightly and it was nothing that people didn't take very seriously as a um, essentially trying to address certain issues that we did think were very important, both writers and actors. In my mind, one of the first of those is the ability of artificial intelligence to create scripts, to create likenesses of actors. And so there needed to be very firm protections put into place so that we're not all replaced by the machines, you know, to quote the Terminator. And then secondary to that was you know, we, we live in a landscape where some sometimes you see the heads of these companies making, you know, 100 or $200 million a year when the average writer can barely struggle to pay their mortgage because writing is a show-to-show job and acting even more so. And so there had to be some sort of a fundamental redress or readdress of the salary structure just out of basic fairness. We are the ones, writers, actors, crew, production designers, clothing designers, the production assistants on every show, we're the ones who go make the shows that enrich these companies and that hopefully provide entertainment for viewers. So it was important that on the acting and writing side that get looked at. And hopefully as we continue down the line with the Teamsters and with the production side of the business, they also get the proper salary increases that they need to survive. Can you talk about your writing process, Chris? Do you squirrel yourself away on a Sunday? Do you do it every morning at 6 a.m.? Or do you go in the shower and think about it? Like, how do you come up with these characters and the words? Like, tell us about how that creativity strikes you. Well, all of the above. Sundays, Saturdays, in the mornings, in the evenings, thinking about it in the shower. But what I would say to people who want to be part of the film and television writing business is just a few quick things. The first is much more so than when I began my career. There's a vast storehouse of knowledge about how to do it. The first few scripts of mine, if you read them, Claire, were awful. I had no understanding of the underlying technique of writing for film or television. And those things can be learned. In other words, there's a certain level of talent to which you can reach, and that's genetically given. Let's just call it that. But there's a ton that can be learned about how to write scripts, how to write movie scripts, how to write TV shows that is available both on YouTube Uh, hundreds, if not thousands of books, many of which I've studied over the course of my career. And then, of course, when I talk to friends of mine who are writing scripts or attempting to write scripts who aren't yet professional writers, they'll say, well, well, it's really hard to get like two or three hours a day to work on a script, much less eight or 10. And I say, you don't need two or three. You actually need 10 minutes a day, but you need it every day. Another thing is to study the great movies and the great television shows that you like to watch. I like to also 
point out to people that it's not just the writer and the characters. There's the writer, the characters, and then the viewer who watches those characters on screen. So it's actually a triangle. And what you're trying to do as a writer is create movements and actions and reactions by the characters that affect the third party, which is the viewer. And so by watching television or movies, you can see, gosh, what made me feel so sad in this moment? What made me laugh? You know, what made me cling to the edge of my seat? How did you kind of like break into the the business? Well, I spent a number of years in my 20s in New York City trying to get traction in a business that was centered in Los Angeles. And finally, at age 28, living at home with my parents or having to move back home with my parents, I realized, okay, I have to get out to Los Angeles. And once I got out there, I realized, oh, there actually is a business where people get hired to write these things because it seemed almost magical at the time. And one of my first shows, maybe my second show that I wrote on was Beverly Hills 90210, which most of my um, cousins still think is the best thing I ever did. But I eventually, I also wrote for The X-Files in its infancy and was largely rewritten by the much more experienced people on that staff. So I had a few early shows that were well-known. And then there was a bit of a dry spell for a number of years. And then television changed. You you could actually write darker material that I was more interested in as as a viewer. And that culminated with getting a chance to create Narcos. All right, that's a wrap for this week. A special thanks to Chris Brancato for making the time to join. By the way, you can catch more of that conversation over at Claire's own podcast called The Media Mix. Just search for that name, The Media Mix, on your favorite podcast listening platform, of course. Uh, Thanks to Elaine and Richard, as always. And remember, you can subscribe to The Ankler at theankler.com to get the latest from Mr. Rushfield, my daily wake-up newsletter, plus entertainment strategy guy who has a brand new piece out, should mention that, on how uh, Disney and Netflix can course correct their animation challenges they've had here uh, 2023. And of course, all the latest from inside the Hollywood executive suites from Peter, Elaine, Claire, and the rest of the Ankler team. You can follow the Ankler at the Ankler on the socials. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. 